1: This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Book Waves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. The great film critic Roger Ebert died of cancer at the age of 70 in 2013. From 1967 until his death, he was the film critic of the Chicago Sun-Times, and from 1975 to 2008, first with Gene Siskel and later mostly with Richard Roper, co-hosted film review television programs, first on PBS and later in syndication. I had a chance to speak with Roger Ebert four times on KPFA. The first two, in tandem with Richard A. Lupoff, have yet to be digitized. My first solo interview with Roger came on April 18, 2002, while he was on tour for his book, The Great Movies, which featured reviews of a hundred different great films. I would interview him again for Great Movies 2 in 2005. The third book in the series was published shortly before his death. All of the reviews can now be found at RogerEbert.com. At the time of this interview in 2002, Roger Ebert had turned his eye to politics, and had become a regular commentator on various television programs. In the interview, we discuss the political climate of the day, including the disputed 2000 election and other issues, some of which have changed over the years and others which haven't. Sections of the interview are also devoted to the viewing technology of 20 years ago, and a lot of that has changed but that's not the only thing that changed. In late 2019, I binged several Fellini films in preparation for a Pacific Film Archive interview. Today, I think Eight and a Half is a great film, and I now agree with Roger Ebert that La Dolce Vita is Fellini's best. The interview was first aired on the program Living Room on KPFA on April 23, 2002. A half-hour version later aired on BookWaves. This is the first time the full interview has been heard in nearly 20 years. I spoke with Roger Ebert in the KPFA studios last Thursday and began by asking him how he came to be a political commentator, in particular his work on Jeff Greenfield's program on CNN during the period between the 2000 election and the Supreme Court's decision naming George W. Bush president.
0: Well, I've always been uh, interested in politics. I've always been political. And uh, I've written op-ed columns for the Chicago Sun-Times over the last five years on political issues and other issues, and um, kind of got involved a little bit in uh, getting a little bit worked up over the Bush-Gore campaign, and in particular, the uh, outcome of the count in Florida. And uh, Jeff called me up. Jeff and I know each other since we were in college together. He was at Wisconsin. I was at Illinois. We were editors of our college papers in the same year. And so we would always meet at uh, college editors conventions where we would do an endless repertory of Bob and Ray routines. And so Jeff
1: called me up and I went on the air and it was fun. Uh, One thing I noticed is that um, you managed to cut through that blather, that Republican blather where they just keep talking until they shut the other person up. It's almost as if the, it was uh, something that they'd all been trained in.
0: Well, I was talking about the their use of memes. Uh, you know Richard Dawkins, the uh, author of The Selfish Gene and uh, River Out of Eden, hypothesizes that there are also memes. A gene goes from body to body and a meme goes from mind to mind. and if you repeat it often enough, it begins to stay and to sound as if it's, um, That makes sense. So that the Republicans in Florida kept saying the ballots have been counted, recounted, and counted again. You heard every single Republican saying that that same mantra, they've been counted, recounted, and counted again. And the answer was, no, they haven't really been counted. They haven't really been recounted, and they certainly haven't been counted again. What they did eventually was they kind of convinced uh, a lot of Americans that in some way the returns were in, Bush had won, and Gore was being a spoil sport. When in fact... Uh, that wasn't true. So that uh, if the, re- the Democrats actually should have had a meme consultant who uh, would have come up with their own mantra that they could have been repeating because in a way I think with sound bites being so uh, abbreviated on the news these days, uh, it doesn't matter what your reasoning is or what your argument is. What matters is the slogan that you can get out there and I think the Republicans did a much better job of getting that slogan out. Just as right now they are using the meme of the war on terrorism to act as a smokescreen for their entire conservative agenda, including you know ninety percent of the stuff has nothing at all to do with the war on terrorism.
1: So what do you think that is? You think it's uh, that somebody's out there coaching them, or, or I don't why? know.
0: I don't know. I don't know how it happens, uh, or who coaches who. Uh, I know that the use of the word patriotism, for example, the Patriot Bill, which they got through Congress, which had nothing to do with patriotism, but basically had to do with undermining the, uh, the Bill of Rights. And um, Of course, if you call yourself a patriot, it kind of, you can kind of get away with that for a while because then nobody wants to vote against the Patriot bill. Uh, I think maybe the Democrats should put all of their stuff together into a bill called uh, the Motherhood and Apple Pie Bill <laughs> and see if the Republicans will vote against that.
1: I look at this and I look at what's happened since 2000. Obviously, uh, I'm convinced Gore won. Um, there's enough proof of it uh, from what the New York Times came up with to indicate that no matter how you well, counted the ballots. The,
0: the the final count indicated that Gore had more votes in Florida than Bush. And I got, got that not necessarily from the New York Times but from a friend of mine named Father Andrew Greeley who is the former head of the National uh, um, Center for Opinion Research at the University of Chicago, which was the group that was brought in in order to actually uh, look at the ballots and figure out what happened. So the, what, this is an interesting thing, too, because most people believe that the recount showed that Bush won. Somehow the story didn't get out that what the final recount showed was that Gore won. That story – somehow that story was reported and the headlines made it that Bush won. It was very peculiar to read these stories and get down to the 19th paragraph and find out that, in fact, Gore had more votes in Florida.
1: Well, some people then, you know, think conspiracy. What's going on here? Oh, I don't think conspiracy. I don't know what to think. I, I just observe. Obviously, you're, you're one of the great observers uh, through seeing uh, so many films. Do you think that by becoming hyper-observant of films – you think that makes you hyper-observant of other things going on?
0: Well, I think that to learn to criticize the media is a useful uh, technique and skill in our, in our time. Um, I do a thing at various universities around the country. I just came from the University of uh, Colorado at Boulder last week where we spent a week going through Mulholland Drive. We spent uh, 12 and a half hours over five days, 1,000 people in an auditorium. Looking at the DVD of Mulholland Drive, and we would stop it after every shot, more or less, and debate what we were being shown and what it meant and uh, what we thought about it. We could freeze frames, we could look for um, uh, perhaps even hidden shots that were not necessarily supposed to be seen at regular projection speed, although we didn't. We found some people in the audience thought we found one of those. Most people didn't think we did. You know, when you look at a film that way, you don't just simplistically allow yourself to be a sponge taking it in. I feel that uh, a lot of people in watching television see it all uh, when they turn on the tube as just pieces of the same thing. You know, the, uh, the John Stewart news and the Dan Rather news are more or less interchangeable. You know, two white adults talking about things that happen somewhere. Uh, you have to really look a little more critically in order to understand. For example, I was absolutely astonished. I remember going on the Chris Matthews uh, hardball show uh, after one of the debates between Gore and Bush in which I thought uh, that Gore had clearly won and that Bush looked for all the world like a, a, a student who was caught without an answer and was desperately wishing for the bell to ring, you know, so the classes would be out. And another point, he appealed to the referee for help. Uh, he looked f- like he was floundering. And a lot of the pundits who went on right afterwards seemed to feel that it was a draw. I couldn't understand that. I, uh, I, I, you know, maybe I'm biased. Maybe it was because I, I had a, an interest in the outcome. But as I was watching that debate, I felt that I was looking at one man who was competent and on top of the issues and well-informed and another man who was faking it.
1: Well, it brings up the idea that maybe the pundits were planning to do that all along. It no, didn't I don't. What know. You're trying to
0: get me into because I don't think the pundits were trying to do that all I, along. I,
1: I don't know if this one it, of the pundits it, who thought it was
0: a draw. Yeah, was Greenfield. <laughs> now I know he wasn't planning to do that all along. I know Jeff Greenfield. I just feel he was
1: wrong. Yeah, I, 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 I know what you're saying, and I don't see conspiracy necessarily. I see push. Some kind of push that people maybe were bending over backwards. Maybe they felt that Bush did better than they thought, and therefore they gave him uh, plaudits. I mean, let, let's take well, film the funny for thing instance. Is Bush
0: didn't do better than I thought. He didn't do as well as I thought he would be able to do. Uh,
1: but, but to put it in the context of film, when I saw Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. okay, I thought it was better than it had any hope to be. I don't think it was that good a movie. I mean, I was an old Tolkien fan. I read the book. So eight you would times. give it three
0: stars. So Pretty that's much. what I gave it, three stars. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good, not great. Right. But, uh, I'm, but but on the other hand, Harry uh, Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was a four-star movie. It was a wonderful movie. But the way that that shook down, maybe this gets to what you're talking about. right? Maybe this is what you're talking about. The Somehow the received opinion was that Lord of the Rings had to be great because everybody had read Tolkien. And Harry Potter couldn't be compared because somehow Harry Potter was a children's book. And in a way, Harry Potter was perceived by the Tolkien fans as a threat to their idol, to their god, to their cult, to their religion. So you know, objectively, the the Potter picture was <laughs> absolutely you know it was it was it was cheerful, it was intelligent, it was colorful, it had great special effects, it had a lot of imagination, it was original. The um, Lord of the Rings, which was a very impressive epic production, nevertheless suffers from the episodic nature of that novel, which is, and then we did this, and then we did that, and then we did this, and then we did that, and then we met the witch, and then we met the wizard, and then we went up the hill and went down the hill, and then we went into the dale, and then we went out of the dale, and then it's uh, into part one, and in part two, they're going to go do this and do that and do this and do that again, you know, it doesn't have... The kind of growth of
1: character that you see in the Harry Potter books, the test of character, too. And the way I'm relating it back to the perceptions about Gore and Bush (laughs) is that, in the one hand, what did people expect of this brilliant, educated man versus Dumbo from Texas? And the answer is Dumbo from Texas kept to his talking points. And so people go, well, maybe not. I mean that's the only thing that I could figure yeah, but out. but in
0: that particular debate that I'm talking about, and gee, it's been so long ago now, right. I don't think I can remember the specific details. But uh, Bush betrayed in his answer to a couple of questions a complete lack of knowledge of what the question was about or what information was needed to answer it.
1: I'm just trying to find out maybe I mean, using there was a black
0: man who, came, who got yeah. up and tried to talk to him about racism in America. And his answer was – had something to do with making America safe. And obviously, if you got through 16 different short circuits in his brain, he was trying to say, you're a black man, so you live in a dangerous neighborhood because all those blacks are criminals. And so somehow we're going to make you good blacks, happy for us, and you're going to vote Republican because we're going to get those criminals off the streets. I think that's what he was saying, (laughs) that if he was looking at a black man who was talking about racism, the black man had to be talking to him about
1: crime. You know, when we look at a movie, we walk in with expectations, Mm -hmm. and if those expectations are somehow not fulfilled or somehow they're not fulfilled to the degree that we want, Mm -hmm. then we tend to tear it down. And vice well, versa. I've I'm wondering that. if it's the same thing in politics. I don't know. I don't know. I've seen
0: that process happen, though, because frequently I'll go into a movie with very low expectations and be pleasantly surprised by how good the movie is. And I'll write a review saying how good it is. And then people will go in with high expectations and find out it wasn't as good as they thought it would be. There's this movie called Changing Lanes, for example, with Samuel L. Jackson and Ben Affleck. The ads make it look as if two guys get in a traffic accident and spend the rest of the day in some kind of a highway duel with each other. That's what you expect it to be about. You get in to see the movie. You find out one of the co-writers was Michael Tolkien, who wrote The Player and, uh, you know, the novel and the movie The Player, and uh, directed a couple of real interesting movies called The New Age and The Rapture, and is a real edgy writer. And then you find out that these two people who get in this accident are both flawed. They're both in the wrong. They're also kind of both in the right. And it's about their worlds, who they are, their personality flaws, and the way their values are tested during this long day. And there are some lines of dialogue in that movie that are stunning in how well they're written and how on point they are. There's a scene, for example, where Ben Affleck goes to lunch with his wife. who was played by, um, let me think. I think I have her written down here because I was thinking of her name earlier. Uh, Amanda Peet. So she says, Now, it's important to know that Amanda Peet's father is the head of the law firm that employs Ben Affleck. And Affleck is about to be made partner. I'm not going to get into the whole plot. Amanda Peet says, Did you know that my father has been having an affair for the last 20 years? Ben Affleck says, No. And his wife just looks at him. And after a while, he kind of says, Well, I I didn't know it was 20 years. And she said, Well, my my mother has known that. And she's never really done anything about it. Because, you know when she married my father, she knew what kind of a man he was. She lives a very comfortable, luxurious life. She spends a lot of money and she enjoys it. And she thinks it would be unfair to criticize a man who makes money unethically for her at home if he behaves unethically in his private life. And then she says to Ben Affleck, are you going to step up to the plate or not? Basically, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. In other words, Uh, Yes, in this business, if you're going to be a Wall Street lawyer, you have to be prepared to cut it real close to the edge in terms of honesty and uh, and the law. And she's afraid that her – and her father has asked her to talk to her husband because she's afraid that her husband, Affleck, will not be prepared to do that. The way that dialogue is written, and I'm afraid I haven't done it justice – you realize this movie is is really on the edge. It's really a smart movie. And so that's the review that I wrote. Now I hope if people people go to see it, they won't be disappointed
1: because, uh, you know, Lord only knows what they're expecting. Let's talk about your book, The Great Movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a a series of 100 100 essays on different films. Most of them are great movies. I would disagree with you about a couple and certainly a few. I mean, uh, I would never put network into a book like this, but I would probably put Out of the Past. I mean, uh-huh, uh-huh. I don't know if you'd disagree with well, that. Well,
0: I disagree with you about Network, but I agree with you about Out of the Past. And in fact, this book is not a list of the 100 greatest movies of all time. I make that clear. Right now on my website, I'm up to about 151 great movies, and I'm still writing them. I'm still, right, right as we speak, I'm in the process of writing Umberto D. and uh, Rashomon. There are movies that you would think would be in this book, like Rules of the Game by Renoir, which are not in here because there was no good video print for me to get my hands on, or or film print for that matter. And I I felt that I had to look at each one of these movies a fresh new time before writing about it for the book. I don't want to base it on memory. So there are a lot of movies that that might be missing, and there may be another book someday.
1: Well, those movies that we're talking about here, uh, we now have DVDs. We have... Mm-hmm. VCRs. Is it possible? I mean, I, I have a big discussion with friends of mine. Is it possible to get the gist of a film that was filmed in CinemaScope watching it full screen?
0: In other words, am I in favor of letterboxing? Yeah. Yeah, I'm in favor of letterboxing. But I'm also in favor of a big, as big a screen as you can possibly have at home. Uh, we, have, we have a heck of a setup in our house. We have an eight-foot screen and an overhead projector. But a lot of people don't have the space or the money for a setup like that, although these days, actually, I would recommend front projection over rear projection to get a larger screen at home because you can get a one-gun sharp projector that that projects an extremely good image for a price which would be less than one of those big screen back projection sets. And you can then have a much bigger screen because, of course, the screen isn't that expensive. The biggest screen you can hang from the wall is not going to cost you $300.
1: When you get to that point, could you then see a film like, say, Lawrence of Arabia and catch well, the nuance?
0: You could look at Lawrence of Arabia at home on a good DVD with a big screen and a good projector and get a better idea of it than you could looking at it on a 19-inch television. That's for sure, especially since letterboxed in that particular case of a movie that was shot at something like 2.35 to 1 or something like that, uh, there would be a lot of black at the top and bottom of the image. But the fact is there are certain movies that you really should see on a big screen. I have this film festival at the University of Illinois called the Overlook Film Festival. And one of the things that we honor every year that is overlooked is 70-millimeter widescreen projection. This year we're going to show Patton. Last year we showed uh, 2001. Two years ago, we showed Oklahoma in 30-frame-per-second Todd AO vision widescreen.
1: Which which version? There were two versions, two widescreen th- versions. Well,
0: the 30-frame-per-second version.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. which was the, the one that rarely got shown. Yes.
0: It had to, you have to have a special Todd AO projector in order to be able to even project it.
1: It's supposed to be superior to the well, other it's, one.
0: It's six more frames a second, which is just enough so that you don't get certain artifacting and, and things like that. Uh, I've talked to people who said, "Well, I looked at that 2001 and didn't do anything for me," and invariably I find out they looked at it on television. 2001 is an immersive experience, and you, you you know you can be reminded of it by looking at it on television or on DVD, but to experience it, I really feel you have to see it on a big screen. It's going around the country right now, by the way, in a 70
1: millimeter revival. Speaking of revivals, there have been these restorations, and I'd like your opinion. Um, there was Star Wars, which you discuss in the great movies. Lawrence of Arabia, which is pretty, which was the same movie mm-hmm. uh, restored, but also Spartacus, which with a scene added. Apocalypse Now Redux with yeah. forty minutes. Uh, E.T. with the change of guns to.
0: Amadeus is out now with another right. 20 minutes or more, I think, maybe more than that.
1: Uh, also, New York, New York, which yeah. was uh, a completely different movie in its enlarged version. Star is Born, Spartacus, Lost Horizon, which kept getting longer and longer and longer.
0: Well, um, it's an interesting question. You take, for example, Amadeus. Uh, Milos Forman and Saul Zantz, who made that film, say that what you are seeing now is the original cut of the film and that they cut it before its world premiere uh, because it was so long. And given the subject matter, classical music, Mozart and so forth, uh, exhibitors felt that they just couldn't show a three-hour movie with that subject matter and make any money with it. Nobody knew at that time it was going to win the Academy Award and so forth. So that what you're seeing now is apparently the version they would have released then if they had been able to. On the other hand, with certain other movies, you get into a real complicated situation. For example, um, uh, A Star is Born now contains a lost musical number that was put back in because some collector had it in his basement illegally, but certainly the studio was happy that he had it and would loan it to them or give it to them. And so you get to see another musical number. But on the other hand, George Cukor cut cut that out of the film before the film was released because apparently he didn't think it belonged there uh with uh, Coppola's Apocalypse now and I interviewed him um, before a big audience at the Cannes Film Festival last year after that was shown. Uh, I felt that the movie, as it was originally released, is one of the 10 greatest movies of all time. I you know I do make occasional lists and uh, that the stuff he added uh, was of various... Uh, importance or dubious even value. Uh, The second playmate scene, for example, just doesn't work. The whole scene at the French um, plantation works as a self-contained scene in a way, um, but provides a a very long and distracting detour off the main story arc, which is this this journey uh, on the river. You don't want to be going down the river, going down the river, going down the river, 40 minutes at the plantation, going down the river, going down the river. And the way that I would handle uh, stuff like that would be to put it on a DVD as deleted scenes or additional scenes so that you can enjoy them that way and appreciate them that way. Uh, but the notion that the movie is, is, is still plastic after a certain point. I know that there's a tradition. You know, that you hear about the painters that go into the Louvre in order to touch up their work or Henry James with his New York edition. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, at some point, you have to say, okay, this is the movie. I mean, The Exorcist came out with a 25th anniversary edition. Okay, so everybody got that. Two years later, he came out with a writer's cut. You know, <laughs> Freakin' says this is the way that William Peter Blatty always thought it should be. So now we'll bring out this version, which incidentally has an ending that is markedly inferior to the, to the Freakin' version. And uh, I don't understand it. At some point, you know, uh, every movie had scenes that you didn't put in at the end. You know, every movie has had had outtakes and things on the cutting
1: room floor. There has
0: to be a point at which you say this is the movie.
1: But then the case, I think, of New York, New York is very different where the studio chopped it up and then Scorsese went back and put it together. Well, every
0: single movie has a different story. And in the case of something like that, You know, if we could get the original uh, Greed back by Von Stroheim, we'd rather see that than the short version that MGM finally released.
1: Or Ambersons, for that matter.
0: Yes, we'd like to see the original Ambersons. So there's a different story every time. And uh, despite what I've said, I think one of the great uh, bonuses of DVDs is that it allows us a format where we can see the stuff that exists. Uh, It's interesting. It's You know, From Hell just came out by the Hughes Brothers with Johnny Depp and Heather Graham. Uh, really quite a visually extraordinary film about Jack the Ripper. And they've added 20 deleted scenes and a different ending. But they haven't added it to the film. They've added it on a separate disc. Well, I'm happy to have that stuff.
1: And uh, I've seen several um, films that have the same thing. Mm -hmm. Interesting, uh, you mentioned... Apocalypse Now Redux. I finally, I've had a DVD for a while. I've never bothered buying films on the grounds that generally I just want to see them once or twice. Mm-hmm. I could rent them. First two films I bought were Apocalypse Now Redux, mm-hmm. which I haven't seen yet. And the other I haven't seen yet either is Citizen Kane, yeah. which contains uh, a commentary by Roger Ebert. By me, yes. Yeah. How does that work? I mean, do you just go into the studio with a bunch of notes? I mean, how, how did you create that? Well, it happens that with
0: Citizen Kane, I've been through that film more than 50 times a shot at a time with various audiences over the years. Uh, Walker Center in Minneapolis, the Smithsonian, University of Virginia, University of Colorado. I could make you a long list of of audiences and students, universities where we've gone through the film, frozen the frame, looked at it. Well, at the same time, I have probably absorbed uh, various books about Wells and about Kane. Uh, so that I have a lot of information rattling around in there. And when I finally came to do it, I basically just looked at the screen and talked because I felt I was familiar enough with most of the things I wanted to say. Unfortunately, there are two big mistakes on my commentary. At one point I'm talking about – and I'll probably get it wrong again on the radio. Um, the The March of Time newsreel at the beginning, the, uh, uh, the newsreel that starts the movie, is a um, – or News on the March, it's called – is a satire of the March of Time, which was the newsreel that Time magazine put out at the time. And it satirizes Time Style, which is the prose style where backward run sentences until real the mind, you know. And I said that it was... um, I referred to a famous satirical essay about that style in The New Yorker and misattributed the name of the author. I'm not going to say it now because I'll probably get it wrong again, you know. Um, Also later... I forgot to point out one I, this isn't a mistake, it's a it's a something I should When in mister Bernstein's office he has the famous story about the girl in the white uh, with the white parasol who got off the boat. And you know, young man, that was fifty years ago, but there hasn't been a month go past from that day to this when I haven't thought about that young woman. As he says that his face is reflected in the shining top of his desk. He stands up, he walks over to the ticker. It's raining outside. He looks at the ticker. He says, It's easy to make a lot of money if all you want to do is make a lot of money. And then he comes back and he stands underneath a portrait of Kane. What I forgot to point out is when he comes back, his desk has disappeared. They (laughs) took the desk out in order to get the next shot, knowing that nobody would notice. I believe But, But in general in going through Citizen Kane, I just had a lot of fun talking fairly specifically about visual composition, visual strategy, and things like that, and and also about the story and the actors.
1: I believe you mentioned that in uh, the great movies. In your essay on Kane. you mentioned the, the disappearing desk.
0: Yeah, and I forgot to mention it when I did the commentaries. <laughs> that's the problem because commentaries are done on the fly. Some guys came out from Warner Brothers and sat uh, with me while we looked at the DVD, and I talked into a tape recorder. That's how it was done.
1: Uh, do you ever listen to those commentaries by directors? Yes. And what do you think of them? Um, depends. Some directors are
0: obviously just sitting around remembering old times. Others are trying to correct or settle a st- score. And others are really knowledgeable about what they're talking about and are really trying to communicate in addition to the movie uh, in various ways.
1: This all brings up a, a broader question, uh, Roger Ebert. Do movies exist by themselves? Or in a a bigger context, not merely the context of the director, but say a film like A Beautiful Mind, right? Which I think if I saw it as a straight fiction film, I think it's a very good film. Mm -hmm. But knowing that the entire film is fiction and it's being pawned off as some kind of biography angers me. And I dislike the film for that reason. Well, they say
0: it's based on... No, 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 no. They said it was inspired by. Inspired I mean,
1: so, Listomania is yeah. inspired by Franz Liszt, you know. Yeah.
0: Well, it doesn't. And it, were you angered by uh, Gladiator because it had very little to do with uh, Roman history?
1: Well, I didn't particularly like Gladiator. No, I thought I didn't it was like typical. Either, typical. it didn't anger you. Uh, not in the same way. I think it's because, in the case of Beautiful Mind, they're they're trying to say, to make some kind of educational statement about mental illness. Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day who told me. Um, that she knows people who have said I am uh, or my child is paranoid, schizophrenic. Seeing this movie got me to do that because somebody who's like that did win a, uh, a Nobel Prize, to which I go, well, the guy in the movie didn't win it. John Nash has very little relation to that.
0: You know, that you're bringing up a very complicated series of questions. First of all, we don't go to the movies for facts. We go to the movies for emotions. We go to the movies for emotional truth. Not factual truth. Factual truth you find in books, or you find in statistics, or you find in newspapers and magazines, or at least you try to. Uh, movies make you feel. If it is true that we need more misunderstanding, <laughs> more yeah, if we need more understanding about schizophrenia, and that it is possible for an extraordinary person to do battle with, with a tragic condition like that and to accomplish something with his life, then that would be the emotional truth in a beautiful mind. The criticism of the movie, I thought, well, every time a movie comes out that's based on a real person, there was the obligatory New York Times article by somebody who has read the book and points out that didn't follow the book. That's probably why Denzel Washington didn't win an Oscar for the hurricane, because people pointed out that it didn't really follow certain facts in the life of Hurricane Carter which is not his fault. You know. He's trying to portray a character in a movie. No movie is the story of a man's life. No movie is accurate about a life. I can't think of a totally accurate bi- biopic. I really can't. People said, well, he was anti-Semitic, so it shouldn't win the Oscar. Well, first of all, if you made a great movie about an anti-Semite, maybe that could win the Oscar. You know, and maybe it would help people to understand that anti-Semitism is wrong. Uh, but the fact is, when he made those statements, he also thought that he was a Palestinian freedom fighter and that aliens were sending him coded messages on the front page of the New York Times. So you can't hold a man like that to the standards of a healthy person because at the time he was mentally ill. So I felt the criticisms of the movie based on facts like that from the book were completely irrelevant and unfair.
1: And, and I would agree with you. I, I guess part of it for me is the fact that they insisted on the John Nash who's still alive – that connection between that and the film, if they changed his well, name...
0: then in that case, all you have to do mentally is change his name yourself and ask yourself if you now like the film. And it's now a movie about John Smith. Do you like it any better now?
1: Maybe I would, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's—it's. It's, that's why I'm saying there's a broader, there's a broader context, mm-hmm. which also goes into, Roger Ebert goes into these directors' discussions. At what point does that change a film? Well, it gives you more information about
0: the film. For example, Scorsese went back and looked at a couple of Michael Powell's films with Michael Powell when he was still alive. Michael Powell, the British director, who was Scorsese's great mentor and inspiration. And they looked at these movies together. Uh, the Life and Death of Colonel Blimp," Black Narcissus. Those soundtracks, uh, the, the commentary tracks, are fascinating because it's two great directors sitting side by side and talking about a movie. And there you just find out a lot about the craft and art of movie directing. It's just informational. Uh,
1: why did you include Peeping Tom rather than Red Shoes or, uh, or Black Narcissus? Well, uh, Red Shoes,
0: Black Narcissus, or certainly Colonel Blimp would be great movies by Michael Powell and will probably be on my list you know, sooner or later because I'm never planning to stop adding to this list. Uh, never. Peeping Tom is a movie about the nature of voyeurism and the relationship between the movie viewer and the movie making process. And it's one of the most brilliant films I've ever seen implicating us in the fact that we are in a way uh, looking, uh, we have a certain kind of gaze when we look at the screen. We are violating the privacy of the people on the screen and that's one of the reasons we go.
1: Roger Rebert, as I was reading the great movies, I kept thinking, for a lot of them movies that i had seen and just did nothing for me Mm -hmm. like don't give me a dirty look eight and a half
0: the dolce vita is
1: i think fellini's best film as i'm reading this i keep thinking am i looking am i watching movies correctly am i what is there a way to watch a film there is your way to watch a film and that's the only way you'll ever watch it
0: and that goes for everyone uh, you can learn more about movies by seeing more different kinds of movies. You know, Godard said the way to criticize a movie is to make another movie, which is a little hard for most of us to do, but maybe the way to criticize a movie is to look at another movie that's been made to see why this one is better or worse than you thought it is. But there, there, there isn't any list or any, any kind of a guideline, and nobody can tell you that a bad movie is good or a good movie is bad if that's the way you feel about it. You know, there's no accounting for taste as our Latin teacher once told us many long years ago in Latin, I believe. So uh, just as you can't argue over humor or eroticism because if you didn't laugh or it wasn't sexy, then I can't tell you, I can't reason with you as to why it was funny or why it was erotic because it just it happens inside of you. By the same token, um, there's no list of things you can study in order to be able to understand movies any differently than you do. If you don't like Eight and a Half, then I've got news for you. It's totally subjective. This entire thing is not a science. It's subjective. And you are right about Eight and a Half.
1: And it is a bad movie. And I'm right about Eight and a Half. And it is a good movie. And that's OK. But is there any way then that you could convince me or find a way for me to see it so that I will look and say, ah, That's a great movie, and if I had looked at it from that perspective from the beginning, maybe my opinion would have been different. I would say in the case of Eight and a Half, the
0: best avenue would be increased familiarity because that movie involves, uh, like Mulholland Drive for that matter, and they're kind of parallel, alternating dream sequences and real-life sequences involving a troubled person who is trying to get a movie made or in the case of Mulholland Drive, uh, somebody who wants to be in a movie and also some people who are trying to get it made. So, as you become more familiar with how it gets back and forth from dream to reality, from fantasy and fear to conjecture and uh, reverie, uh, it become, I think it begins to flow a little better and you, you begin to appreciate it more. I, I think also it can be defended just on the bottom line of being visually brilliant in terms of the images that Fellini always was able to call upon and his his camera mastery.
1: What about seeing films more than once? I mean, you bring it up here. How important is it or is that just a case of individual films? Well, most movies uh, should not even be seen once.
0: And uh, most movies uh, that should be seen once don't necessarily have to be seen twice. But some movies are like record albums, you know, that you can't play too often. The albums of our lives, you know, that old CD or maybe even the, uh, the, the vinyl album that we pull out and put on. And it brings back that summer of 73 in a way that will never be captured any other way. Do you think you can ever get tired of Citizen Kane? I have not gotten tired of it yet, and I think I've looked at it you know, far beyond the theoretical limit of how many times people should look at a movie. Which is how many? I don't know. I think for most people, they see it twice, and if they're really fans, five or six times. Then you get people who, uh, I mean, there are people I've talked to who have already seen the DVD of Moulin Rouge um, 30, 40 times. Oh, I look at it every week, every week. I'm not quoting myself here.
1: And I know I would like to see Gosford Park three or four more times to get the nuance. Well, you know,
0: Altman told me nothing makes him more depressed than someone who says, I've seen your movie, when what they mean is I've seen it once. And he said, I make my movies to be seen three or four times. And certainly with Gosford Park, um, once you understand it, kind of, from the first go-through, and go back, it begins to reveal itself in different facets and in different uh, lights and shades. Uh,
1: Roger Ebert, let's talk a little bit about racism in in movies. Uh, Before we went on the air, you said that one of the reasons you think Halle Berry might have been nominated and even won the Oscar was because you and uh, Richard Roper pushed it early, Monsters Ball, early um, on the television show.
0: I was not trying to blow my own horn. We were able to see the movie, in December. And we went early with our review, and it was the first national review of the movie, and I said it was the best movie of the year. And then we did our best 10 show, and I called it the best movie of the year. It didn't make any of the other critics' lists, because their polls had closed in a way. They had to see a movie by the 15th of December for it to qualify, or they had already voted, or whatever. And so if you look at the best 10 list, you'll find that Monster's Ball wasn't on uh, very many of them. And I just think that the fact that a movie like that got some legitimacy somewhere. It didn't have to be me. It could have been the New York Times. It could have been the San Francisco or or Los Angeles papers or anyone. But there had to be somebody to tell the voters in Los Angeles who get the free DVDs that this movie must be paid attention to. And uh, they put up a big billboard, best movie of the year, Roger Ebert and so forth. And I think that maybe some people looked at the DVD because of that billboard. But it wasn't because – I'm the one who said it. Right. It's because someone said it. And, and a movie needs to – if a movie is going to find attention in that end-of-the-year Oscar madness, somehow there has to be some kind of legitimacy that it gets to attract people to it. I felt that if enough people saw Monster's Ball, Halle Berry would win the Oscar because it was clearly the year's best performance. And I was afraid that enough people had not seen it. And then she won the Screen Actors Guild Award. And then I knew that she would win the Oscar because the Actors Guild had proven that enough people had seen the movie.
1: Well, now we've got an African-American winning for both uh, actor and actress. Mm -hmm. Is this just a blip?
0: Yeah. It's just this year's result. When you go back and look at – there have been six women nominated for – six black women nominated for Best Actress in 74 years – Seventy-four times five. If there would be five nominees a year. And then, uh, you know, it doesn't yeah. work out. You see, no. it's just there aren't, uh, there aren't enough n- African-American names there. It's often recalled that Hattie McDaniel was the first black woman nominated for an Oscar. Uh, that year at the uh, Academy Awards banquet, because the awards were given out at a banquet, she didn't sit at the same table with David O. Selznick and Vivian Lee and Clark Gable. Hattie McDaniel and her husband set at a table for two, over by the wall. And in a way, African-Americans are still still sitting over by the wall in Hollywood. They're not getting uh, as many roles and as many good roles, and women are having a harder time than men. Because right now, African-American men are very successful in the movies and are much in demand, especially for action pictures, and for some reason, science fiction movies. It's a law now. You can't make a science fiction movie that doesn't have a major black star top-lined somewhere uh, on that poster. But actresses are having a hard time of it. And Angela Bassett, who was nominated 10 years ago for What's Love Got to Do With It, one of our greatest actresses. Um, how many roles has she had in the last 10 years? Good ones. She was in Strange Days, which got overlooked, unfortunately. But But there you go. No, there's a lot of room for progress. But on the other hand... I was backstage when uh, Sidney Poitier came backstage after winning his honorary Oscar, and somebody got up and said, well, Mr. Poitier, has anything really changed that much in the last 50 years? And he looked at that questioner and he said, well, I've been here 53 years in this town, and I made 58 movies. I can tell you what has changed, I can tell you what has remained the same, and I can tell you what has gotten worse. And I want to tell you, yes, things have changed in 50 years. And so that's, you know, it's kind of like half full, half empty. Things are a lot better than they were. They ought to be a lot better than they are.
1: Roger Ebert, uh, The Great Movies does not contain movies from the past six or seven years. No, it
0: takes a while. <laughs> it takes – they have to marinate. <laughs> you know, also, one of the purposes of writing the book, I think, was to encourage people to go back and look at some of the older movies, silent films and films uh, You know, from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. So many people live in the present. They go into the video store and they rent from the shelf of movies that are new on video. You know, oh, look, this is already on video and it was only in theaters last month. I'm going to rent this. So the idea is to kind of encourage them to go back into the past a little bit. And so, no, it's not. And also, from my point of view, I wanted to go back and look at some of these older movies and write reviews on them. I've reviewed all the movies of the last uh, 10 years. So you can read my original review if that's what you want to do. There are some recent movies in here, Um, Pulp Fiction, uh, Fargo, Do the Right Thing, 42 Up, the latest segment of that documentary series, Hoop Dreams, movies like that. But, uh, no, you have to kind of wait until you see how good they really are.
1: Well, one thing I do is uh, the place where I get videos during the week There's a four-for-two offer. Buy two and you get four. And I always Mm -hmm. try to make one of them. Be an old movie, and the last two, which that's are great. not not in this book, uh, were well, Lola Montez, mm-hmm. odd, very strange movie, and right. it, Max Ophuls. You know, Andrew Sarraz claims that's the best movie ever made. uh yeah, <laughs> and I uh, well, don't know it's if you the agree understand. with him or not, right? No, but there was another Max Ophuls movie that I was floored by called The Earrings of Madame D. Yes, yes, that is one of my great
0: movies. It's not in here, though. No, you have to go to the website. Oh, suntimescom <laughs> slash Ebert, where there are 51 more movies that aren't in the book. And that one is. So why should you buy the book? You might ask. Well, and the answer is because these have been rewritten, revised, corrected. And because each one is illustrated with a still selected from the archive of the Museum of Modern Art by Mary Corliss, who is the who was the uh, archivist. Of the film stills uh, archive at the Museum of Modern Art, so it's a it's a it's there was some
1: value added here in the book. Right. Well, from my perspective, I can I can look at it and um, and I'm thinking in terms of this can be a kind of guide, not for the films that are in here, but for the directors and some of the other oh, works yeah. that people you Oh yeah, people like Bunwell,
0: Bresson, Ozu, right. who people don't necessarily get to. But *Earrings of Madame D* is a very good film, it, uh, and no, they never finish the sentence, you know. Uh, she's, no, she's Madame D.
1: Here comes Madame De, they never tell you what her name is. It's an astonishing film because the camera travels and almost every sequence is seen through a window, a mirror. Mm -hmm. It's glass, it's just opulent, just an extraordinary film. You know, if you like that movie, you would also like Children
0: of Paradise, or have you already seen it? Uh, Yeah, I've seen it. Do you know, have you seen it on the new Criterion DVD? No, I have not. They have cleaned that movie up to such a degree, the new DVD of Children of Paradise is like looking at a different film. I have never seen a print of this movie in any condition that comes anywhere near being as clear as this new dvd I mean,
1: you mentioned in here this new uh, new print of m and i just remember m with peter Laurie being so dark that mm-hmm. i could barely see anything
0: one of the great
1: advantages
0: of digital restoration which they can do on dvds is they can go in a frame at a time or even a pixel at a time in a way and uh make these films look more like they did on opening night
1: Roger Ebert, I'm going to throw you for a loop on this one. How scared should we be of someone like John Ashcroft?
0: You know, I wasn't offended that he wanted to cover up the statues of justice. I was offended at his judgment in doing so. Every attorney general for the last, what, 40, 50, 60 years have been standing in front of those statues. One of them has a bare breast. And uh, he's the one who feels that they have to be covered up because he doesn't want to be photographed standing in front of that bare breast. Okay. In that case, he should have his press conference somewhere else. But to cover up the statue shows he's totally out of touch with the fact that that would make him a laughingstock uh, for people in this country and all over the world. He lives in in a world that is so blinkered that he doesn't understand what the effect of that action would be, and that's what bothers me.
1: I keep thinking, what if this man were, say, to replace Cheney as vice president or become president? I mean, you're, you're a critic of the arts. Well, I believe that
0: right now we, we are really looking at the ascendancy of the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us against. And the tragedy, one of the tragedies of 9-11, is that it gave these people a great deal of legitimacy for, for aims that may be very bad for the health of the human race.
1: What can art or films do?
0: That's not to say that I'm in favor of right. what happened on 9-11. Oh, no, no, I know terrorism, what you're yeah. You know, because they'll immediately – you know, they take any statement like the one I just made and turn it into some kind of a patriotic uh, – an unpatriotic statement. They won't take any criticism at all. You know, as long as they are against terrorism and evil, everyone who's against them is in favor of evil. Well, we, and, we, and, and, yeah. and Bush uses evil as kind of like an all-purpose word for all the words he wishes he could think of but have slipped his mind for the moment.
1: Uh Ashcroft at one point said if you criticize him, you're a traitor. I mean if you criticize Bush, you're a traitor. Well,
0: yeah. Well, any know. attorney general who can say that doesn't know enough about the law to be attorney general.
1: So what, what can art, um, a film, what can film do to counter that? Film is an empathy machine.
0: Film allows us uh, to stand a little bit of time in the shoes of somebody who is not ourselves, a person from another time, a different country, another race, a different gender. Uh, it makes us more universal. We are not stuck just inside of who we are and how we define ourselves. And if you see a lot of foreign films and a lot of older films and films from cultures that are unfamiliar to you, not just, you know, like British films and French films, but what about an Iranian film, an Indian film, a Korean film, a Turkish film, uh, an Eskimo film like the one, The Fast Runner, that's coming out this spring? Uh, It helps you in a very direct way to have an escapist or voyeuristic uh, experience to identify with the uh, experiences of other people. And I think that has to be good. I think it's uh, uh, discouraging that so many moviegoers today and probably all through history have preferred to go to movies that are about people more or less like themselves.
1: In the coming few months, what films should we be looking at as being hopefully great films?
0: Well, there's a movie that's making its way around the country right now called Monsoon Wedding, directed by Mira Nair. and uh, it's a comedy about an extended, two extended families uh, in, in Delhi and a, a family uh, wedding ceremony. And the thing about this movie is most people have never seen an Indian film and most people have never heard of Monsoon Wedding, but those who have seen it love it. There are lines outside the theaters that are playing it. The word of mouth is incredible because it is such an amazingly romantic and funny and moving human story. It's just a great movie. It's a good time at the movies. And a movie like that as it kind of creeps around is a good thing. Then there's a, a movie that's not that good, but it's also very interesting, called My Big Fat Greek Wedding. It takes place in Chicago. It's about a Greek-American woman who finally gets married at the age of 30 uh, to a guy who isn't Greek and um, the extraordinary thing about this movie is everyone in it looks like they're a real person. You ever have that problem when there's a Julia Roberts movie and she's the wallflower who can't get a guy, and you kind of doubt that, you know? In this movie, everybody looks exactly like they could be the person they're playing, and it started out as a one-woman show by a Greek-American actress, and it was seen by Rita Wilson, Tom Hanks's wife, who was Greek herself, and the two of them decided to produce it as a movie, and I think it's worth seeing, too. So I like movies like that that kind of allow us to see a little
1: bit more into cultures that aren't the same as our own. You've been listening to an interview with the late film critic Roger Ebert, recorded in the KPFA studios on April 18, 2002, and aired on the program Living Room on April twenty third, 2002. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. And feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.